0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Mark Shankius. Mark is the author of The Other Side of Sales. He's a veteran from procurement, 15 years in procurement, and his mission is to build bridges between sales and procurement, a very noble cause, I suspect not an easy one. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you,
1: Marcus. Glad to be on the show. Excellent. Would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spent about 17 years working for Mars, the, the chocolate company, which I um, uh, had 15 years in procurement in, in various roles. So I've pretty much seen it all in uh, procurement. So local, regional, global uh, roles, but also strategic and tactical, which is uh, slightly different. And I'll explain a bit uh, about yes, the difference later on. Also worked in direct and indirect. Direct is direct uh, impact on the product or service that you sell. Indirect uh, are more like services that are needed for the, for the organization. So I worked in raw materials and packaging and third-party manufacturing and I bought services such as logistic services for, uh, for Mars. So I've really had an extensive uh, career in, uh, in Mars. So, and I also meant uh, I, there was little left to learn for me uh, inside Mars. So I decided uh, about three years ago to, uh, to leave Mars and to set up my own business. Realizing and looking at the outside world, I realized how much benefits I could have to, especially the sales organization, even the buying organization, especially the sales organization. And since then, I've, I've basically helped both. I've helped buyers deal with sellers, but actually the part I like even more is to help sire, sellers get better at dealing with buyers, with professional buyers, because I find they often struggle with that. So I help them at strategic level, really analyzing um, a buyer and, and, and how they make decisions and what tactics they're using and, and, and what strategies they're applying, but also operational level, really helping them to negotiate. And well, as you mentioned, I'm also the author of The Other Side of Sales. It's a, it's a book for sales professionals where I'm sharing some secrets and insights into how to deal with professional buyers. Excellent. Well,
0: professional buyers buy many times a day. And the problem is that sellers generally aren't selling anywhere near as frequently. So I think a lot of sellers feel very intimidated when they're going in to meet buyers. And if you don't understand the difference between a strategic purchasing professional and a tactical one, it's very easy to get unstuck. So in terms of getting your head in the right place to deal with a buyer who's probably dealing with five or six Salespeople, or maybe even more every day. What advice would you give in terms of preparation? I think
1: first thing always do is, is to do a bit of analysis about the buyer. Who are you meeting? Can be at a personal level, no really understanding the person you're dealing with, but also understanding their priorities. I found that throughout my career, I rarely had this very simple, basic question asked by sellers, which was Mark, what are your objectives this year? Or what are your business objectives or you know, anything that's that really asks a question about what does a buyer want? What do we want to achieve? And then secondly, even, even well, as important is not just asking this question, but also following up on that question. So how can you help the buyer achieve their objectives? And rarely salespeople do that. And this is really key. Buyers buy
0: outcomes. They do not buy your product. They don't buy your service. At best, they rent the outcome. Yeah. And the big problem is that salespeople are fixated on selling their ugly baby. Let's start with what are the four
1: most common questions that you get asked? Right. Okay. So I think number one question that I get asked is, especially by sellers, is I'm under pressure and I feel like either I don't have to lower my prices or I'm going to lose business. That's the dilemma. So what do I do? Do I lower prices or do I just accept that I'm going to lose the business? And how do I deal with this? this Especially you see this happening in RFPs or in tough negotiations. And buyers know this is a game of pressure. They're putting pressure onto their current suppliers, new suppliers, just to, to get better prices. And how I approach it typically, because there, there's no easy solution because if it would have been an easy solution, then everybody would have been using it uh, by now. So uh, <laughs> that's not the case. So so how I approach negotiations, I I, I simplify negotiation by saying there's, there's, when you negotiate, you're sitting on a chair and you're sitting at a table. Typically, these days it's, uh, it's it's more virtual, but and I think the, the chair you're sitting on can have two colors. Uh, I use two colors, red and blue. Red is warm. It's where you build a relationship. You're in partnership you're looking, it's a collaborative negotiation, you care about the other party, you want both to win, yeah? So if you think of it as a, as a cake, you're looking together, you're looking to grow the cake, you yeah? getting more out right. of it. A blue negotiation is called one-off, relationship not important, and it's like dividing the cake. Who gets the biggest chunk? You know, it's just imagine if you buy something on uh, on eBay or whatever, It's it's very blue because you just want to get the best deal, you don't care about the other person's best deal. So these are the type of negotiations, yeah? For those of you who've been following the podcast
0: uh, recently, that's the difference between playing an infinite game where the objective is to keep the game going and grow the pie for everybody versus a finite game, which is to either win or not lose and where your objective is to take a bigger slice of a shrinking pie. So in, in an ideal world, and the world is not ideal, we want to be sat in those red chairs rather than the blue.
1: It depends on the situation. I think um, because what happens is you, you, you sit on the red chair and the other party sits on the red or blue chair or whatever. So, so there's like four possible combinations. Red, red, blue, blue, and blue, red, or vice versa. If both are red, if both are sitting on the red chair, the table is red, which is perfect. You know, because right. you're both interested in a long-term relationship. You're both looking at creative solutions, how to grow the pie. That's a seller's dream typically. Red, red, because that means a red yeah. table yeah. and you, you, can, you can build long-term partnerships. Blue, blue. Fine as well every now and then. You just, rec- just realize, you know, we're, we're both looking to get the best deal out of it and it's, it's going to be a tough negotiation. Yeah, because when one part is blue, the other is blue, the table is blue as well. But you know where you stand. You know where you stand. Yeah, it's, it's simple. If you buy something on eBay, you don't know the person, you know, it's it's very blue. Both are blue. Yeah, the one wants to sell uh, for as much as possible and the other one wants to buy it as cheap as possible. You know, that's, that's, that's that's the principle. One wins, one loses and you know, you end up somewhere. Now, the tricky part is, is when one person is blue and the other person is red. Now sitting on a red chair. People, I often ask, what, what color do you think the table is? And they come up with all kinds of solutions like purple and, and oh. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. The fact is, the table is blue. Yeah. So the blue side will be winning, the red side will be losing. It's that simple. And I think this is so important to recognize. And but my experience is that often... I know this is a very generalist remark, but often sellers are very red, looking at partnership, long-term contracts, long-term solutions, very red. Buyers, often very blue. And this is why sellers have such a hard time negotiating with buyers. Because if a buyer is truly blue and you're red, you feel like you're giving, 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 and the buyer is taking, 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 and you feel you're not getting anything in return. And, and that that provides a lot of pressure with, with, with the sales community. And this is something that's, you need to recognize, to recognize that situation. Like, oh, right, I am red, they are blue. You need to, need to change that. You need to do something about that. And the question is, what can you do? Okay. Yeah, what can you do? So so actually, there's only two solutions to simplify it even again. Either you become blue because you're negotiating at the blue table, so you might as well become blue. But you know what's going to happen in terms of the relationship. Yeah? It's going to be a bit of a hack or a bit of a fight. Often salespeople don't want that. It's a solution. The other solution is you want to get the other party to sit on the red chair, because once the other party is on a red chair, the table becomes red, and therefore you will have a red negotiation. So those are the only two solutions. The difficulty is it's easier for you to become blue than it is to make the other person red, because they they don't (laughs) automatically see that red is beneficial to them, because they believe blue is beneficial. And that's really the trick how to make that that work. And, uh, And that's hard. That's a
0: really interesting insight. I know that you've got a, a crowdfix matrix to explain this as well. Can you explain the concept of uh,
1: financial impact and sure. supply risk? So if people ask me, can you summarize buying into one tool? If I think about all the tools we have in buying, all the, the, the things we use, and I have to choose just one, it would be Kalyich Matrix. Yes, developed by Peter Kalyich. He was a consultant. Long time ago, like in 1983, and it's still one of the most intensively used tools in buying. So if you ever want to understand the buyer, just Google this tool or check it out because it is, it is so fundamentally important. I'll explain the model. So it's actually a, a two by two grid yeah, with four boxes. And Actually, on the one, one axis, you have the financial impact. What is financial impact? Well, if you're a, a chocolate manufacturing company, cocoa has typically a higher financial impact than when you're buying toilet paper. So it's, but they all need to be bought. So you need to buy a toilet paper, you need to buy cocoa. But the impact on total profitability, on growth, on savings, earnings, on profits, you know, it's, 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 it's high or low. Yeah, so that's financial impact. That's one element. The other element of the matrix is supplier risk. Uh, supply risk can be either low or high. If I really make it a, a very simplified version of that, I would say, if you have one supplier, your supplier risk is high. If you have hundreds of suppliers, your supplier risk is low. So, for example, uh, transport, transportation is typically a low supply risk because you know, there's thousands of transport companies out there who can, who can make it work. But if you're sourcing like a patented raw material ingredient that only one company can make, your supply risk is high. And then you end up with four dimensions and I'll explain all of them. So, if you have low, low, so a low financial impact and a low supply risk. Uh, the example of toilet paper is perfect because there's hundreds of suppliers of toilet paper and it doesn't have a lot of financial impact. The buying strategy is called routine. Routine means you are simplifying your purchasing approach. You don't want to spend time and energy on it, which means long-term contracts, consolidating into one supplier. You know, you don't buying catalogs is what sometimes we use, like catalogs, just buy from this catalog and be done with it. You, you don't want to spend time on that because it's a commodity. It's a commodity. It's, it's extremely commoditized product. Yeah? So you don't want to do that typically. The second area, and that's the one that buyers love the most, is a low supply risk and a high financial impact because they have hundreds of suppliers to choose from, but they can make an impact. So they can show off internally how great they are as buyers because they, they can make a lot of money yeah? because it's, it's a category that is, that is quite uh, valuable to, uh, to the organization. And it's leverage. You know? So it's called leverage. So in a leverage market, Buyers run tenders, auctions, you know, to get the most out of it, yeah, out of their uh, their respective categories. That's why yeah. love being there. The third area is called bottleneck. And bottleneck is where you have a low financial impact and a high supply risk. And typically, these are the products or service or materials where you just have one supplier, but you don't care too much about it because they don't have a lot of financial impact. And... This is an important area for uh, if you're a salesperson, if you're, if you're, what you are selling is in a buyer's bottleneck category, you have significantly more power than a buyer will tell you they have. Because if I just make a simple example, if you want to sell cars and the rearview mirror, which is just a small part of your car, is missing, you can't finish the car. You can't sell the car because that's a critical element of a car. And if you only have one supplier with rearview mirror, mirrors, that's a bottleneck item. The impact is not high, but still you can shut down factories. You can stop an entire production line as a result of it. So bottleneck items are a nuisance to buyers.
0: I have a story around this. My friend Alan Sang is a negotiation trainer. And um, he goes in and works with clients. And one was an engineering company, and they took on the production of a particular component of um, a very important piece of uh, drilling equipment for the oil and gas market. And the problem was the design isn't great. And they were having all sorts of problems. And the buyer was shouting and screaming and pounding the desk and telling them that they were going to sue and all this kind of stuff. So they'd done the rehearsal and they realized they were a bottleneck product. So they said, well, look, It's not a problem. We're going to withdraw from the contract. We'll give you the drawings. We'll give you the IP so you can get it manufactured yourself, at which point the buyer just reversed because no one wanted to touch this product. And they ended up getting a much better arrangement. The relationship improved instantly because now they recognized what their power was, and the buyer saw that the risk of treating them poorly
1: would result in a catastrophe. Absolutely. That's a, that's a spot on example of, of a bottleneck scenario. I mean, I mean, the impact, the financial impact was maybe low. The supply risk was extremely high for the buyer. So they had no alternatives. They had to work with this company. So they had to make it work. That's bottleneck. And the last one, and, and I'll talk a bit about colors in, uh, in a second, like blue and red. That will explain it even better. It's the last one is where you have a high financial impact and a high supply risk. And that's the area is called strategic. That's an area where buyers are interested in making strategic partnership because, yes, they can make a big financial impact. And yes, they only have one supplier to source from. If you're buying, if you're selling a Boeing 747 engines, you know, there's only a couple of companies in the world who can actually do that. So it's a very critical item. Without it, you, you, can't, buy, you, you can't buy a plane. So you, you need to have this particular, uh, particular item. So that's strategic. And what you do, you go into strategic partnerships here. So in strategic, you look at okay, how do we work together, build connections at every level in the organization, uh, etc. What buyers do, which I forgot to mention, in bottleneck, because it's a nuisance, they don't like spending too much time on it because they don't, you can't really see the impact of it financially mm-hmm. because it's, it's it's financially small. The risk is really high, so officially the strategy should be either be approve new suppliers or we decomplexify the specification. We make the specification simpler so we can actually open up to multiple suppliers in the market. So then eventually you can move it either you know, to, 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 to routine or to leverage. Now, the interesting part, if I then add the colors, is routine and leverage, so which are both low supply risk, the color of the, the chair that the buyer sits on is blue. They have hundreds of suppliers to choose from. They don't care about you. Even though you don't like it, they just don't care about you because they can choose from 99 other suppliers. They have access to everyone. Now, they will start to care once you're in bottleneck or strategic because then you are the only supplier who can supply that to them. And they have to work with you, so they have to build a relationship with you. They might pretend that you're a leverage supplier, but if you really do the analysis thoroughly and you find out you're in bottleneck strategic, you have significantly more power at the negotiation table because they have to be red. if you're red, that's where you can build these kind of partnerships. This now raises
0: another really important point about the role of the salesperson and how engaged they need to be with a strategic buying partner. Because like I said at the beginning, people rent the outcome. And if you are not maintaining regular contact, if you do not remain relevant, then it's very easy for that strategic red partner to turn blue and then you become irrelevant. And that's where those relationships fall apart. So a lot of salespeople talk about acting as partners for their customers, but they're really not. So can we delve into what makes for a great partnership when you're on the buyer side and what is it you're looking
1: for from the seller? A partnership will only exist once you have something unique to sell. If I'm a buyer and I can choose between you and 19 and others, and if I know that's the case, why would I bother uh, investing time into a relationship with you? Because I would rather spend that energy on building relationships with suppliers that actually do matter, where I do have, uh, where I do, where I am a single source, where I only have one supplier offering. Do you mind if I challenge that? Sure. Yeah. I agree. If
0: all your vendors, are offering the same product and the same service. Exactly. But where I have seen people in commodity spaces create strategic relationships is where they offer buyer safety. Because where the customer is worried about the cost of things going wrong, and you can massively differentiate both in the sale and in the ongoing relationship and after-sales service, and
1: that allows you to position yourself as strategic. Correct, exactly. The, the point I was going to make is you're, you're right. A buyer will always aim to move you into a leverage area. They will tell you that you're a commodity or that you can they can source from others. They will never tell you you're unique and one of a kind, and are the only you're the only one they can source from. Because if once they do, they know they will lose the negotiation. So they will always try to commoditize. So when you're running when they're running auctions. You have no idea who you're competing against. Tender RFPs, you have no idea who you're competing against. Are they really competitors or are they just offering a very different service? And that is absolutely crucial to find out because once you are unique and you know you are unique, you have much more power in the relationship. But the buyer will never tell you how unique you are. They will always create an illusion because a tender is a bit of an illusion they create that there is competition. So it's, it's really around understanding what makes me unique. And it doesn't necessarily have to be price or, or quality. It can also be service levels or other things that that or the innovation capabilities. It can be other areas. But as long as you're unique, buyers will have a reason to want to work with you. If you're not unique, if you're one out of a thousand, buyers will have no reason to work specifically with you, and they'll they'll go out uh, to the market running RFPs and leveraging uh, leveraging your tariffs.
0: Excellent. Okay. So let's move on to the next
1: common question that people ask? I think one of the key questions is how do I build a strategic partnership with my buyer? We talked briefly about that already, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. So like I said, it only works when both parties are red. Huh? Sitting on the red chair and the table is red. Once any one of those becomes blue or the, t- the chair becomes blue, the table becomes blue automatically. Yeah? So it's important to continue to invest time and understanding are we still both red? Yeah? Are we still sitting on the red chair? Because once it changes, the power changes, the balance of power changes, and automatically the table becomes blue. That's something to be really wary of. Yeah? So I think the reason why buyers don't like partnerships as a word, because there's this big topic in the, in, the, in the buying community, and it's called single sourcing. Some buyers will say, yeah, single sourcing is great because we can build a partnership with the supplier. I always found single sourcing very scary because single sourcing means I only have one supplier to buy from. From a sales perspective, perfect. From a buyer perspective, I just see risks. And I don't even mean you know intentional risk, but if I'm single source, if I have one supplier I can source from, we could have a financial or a commercial dispute that could happen, but you could also have a strike in your factory, something completely out of your control. That means I'm going to have to shut down my factory because I do, I'm not delivering your products anymore because you can't deliver it. So it is looking at it from multiple aspects. It's financial, but it's also service and quality. If there's a quality incident and you're the only one supplying this, Product or material, I'm in trouble. So single sourcing is always a high risk. But single sourcing, from a sales perspective, is perfect because you know you're the only supplier who can deliver it, and you can actually build a partnership. It's a fine line, you know, between what's right or wrong. And not every buyer is against single source or against building the strategic partnerships. But you have to bear in mind that for a buyer, there is a significant risk. So if you're really interested in becoming a single source supplier think about how you're going to mitigate risks for the buyer. And and that's the point. Every
0: business is trying to manage time, money, and risk. And uh, they don't actually care about the risk. What they want is certainty. Um, And if you cannot give them that sense of certainty, it's at that point that the buyer will start really squeezing you hard Um, because they think if that goes wrong, Now I'm going to have to pay to get it fixed. I'm going to have to go out and source someone else. And we know how hard that was in the first place. So part of your proposition must be risk mitigation and the delivery of certainty. And this is where many salespeople go wrong because their natural inclination is to do the drive-by shooting, get the transaction, then move on. And if you are not selling the after-sale, when you're trying to get um, a strategic partnership, chances of that ever happening are virtually nil. And even if they do happen, it's not going to be a real one. You're going to find that they're on a blue chair, they're on a blue table, and you think you've got a partner, but actually you've got someone who is afraid, frustrated,
1: and likely to be looking for an alternative. Absolutely powerful to having a risk mitigation program for a buyer saying, I know, you know, we are the only supplier and I understand that might be a risk if you. Here's my suggestion. I think we can approve alternative suppliers so that alternative factories that we can supply you from. So if one factory burns down or whatever happens, we can source from another one in terms of service level. Let's talk about our, our, our stock level management, how we can make that work, all these kind of things, you know, and uh, you need your supply chain to help you with that, your quality uh, team and your supply chain to help you with that. because. Once you do that, a buyer will be at ease. They don't like risk. I can guarantee you that the bottleneck area, believe it or not, is probably the majority of items a buyer buys. The majority is in bottleneck. It's not in leverage or it's in strategic or routine. The, the, The majority is is in bottleneck. Because typically companies buy hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of items. For the big ones, the important ones. They'll be in leverage. They have identified suppliers and, and developed them, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for the majority, which is like the long tail of smaller spent items, will not have done all that work. So many items will be in bottleneck, which for a buyer will be small. For you as a seller, might be extremely important. So make sure that once you're in bottleneck, provide a risk mitigation program, and buyers will be very, very happy with that because they don't want to run risk. It's negativity. Excellent. Okay. So. If we look at
0: the other areas of common worry for a salesperson when they're trying to understand the buyer, what else are they asking you?
1: One question I get asked a lot is how does an RFP process look like from a buyer's perspective? It's a great question because most uh, salespeople don't know. They will have never seen that full process. They get informed at a point in time, but they, they haven't seen the part that has taken place beforehand. I would say iceberg analogy works quite well in these kind of situations because I think 70%, 70% of the work will have been done before the, you actually get to see the tender or the RFP. As such. So, so the biggest chunk of the iceberg is under under the water on the surface level, and you will see a small piece. And that's typically what the sellers see. They don't see the part that's underwater. It's quite a list of things that happen before actually a buyer decides to run an auction or an RFP or a tender or whatever you call it. So you want me to run that through? It's quite a... It's quite yes, a, please. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's good to understand. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through some of these uh, important items and then I'll explain quickly what they are. So what buyers first do is a market assessment. Before they run an RFP, they need to know, do, is there enough competition on the market? So who's available in the market? Who are the suppliers? Where can we source from? And it's quite a tedious process that they go through. Then they decide on the procurement approach. So based on the market what is the best approach? Should we run an auction? Should we run an RFP? Should we just negotiate with our current supplier? So they decide what is the best approach in this particular market. Then they set up a project team. Yeah. So they create a project team uh, where basically they are, uh, so normally the buyer will be there. Typically some internal stakeholders will be there, some important stakeholders. So when you're buying logistics, you'll have the logistics manager there, uh, maybe a quality manager. So you'll have some, some internal stakeholders who are taking part in that uh, in the process. So you create a project team, and then together you agree on the scope. So what are the timings? What are we going to focus on? What are we going to include? What are we going to exclude? All of that. So you go through the scope. then you talk about objectives. So what are we trying to achieve? On the savings, is it around improving service levels? Is it around you know, security that we need multiple suppliers per uh, whatever? So So it's really around creating those objectives together as a team. And then with that, you go to your senior management saying, right, this is our plan. This is what we do. Can you sign this project off? Yes or no? Because in the end, once you've completed the deal, you want them to sign off the final results as well. So you need to get them involved at an early stage. Then what I typically do is, is not every buyer will do that, but it's stakeholder mapping. So who are all the stakeholders that are going to be impacted by our decision? It's bigger than the project team. The project team are, of course, key stakeholders, but some people have to live with the results of the RFP that we're running. So we map the uh, the stakeholders and we inform them Yeah, so and, and decide how do we inform them, how frequently, all, right. all of that. Yeah? And then we, we do a tender time plan creation. So we talk about what are the timings, when do we start, creating specification, da, da, da. so really going through and you start with the end in mind, saying, okay, we want to go live on August 1st and then work your way backwards towards when do we need to start. Yeah, So that's what you do. And then in the meantime, we create specifications quality a technical specification a commercial specification operational specification all this, all the specifications you create with that project team so everybody has a role to play because I find this is typically uh, undervalued by buyers they don't create a great specification it takes time it takes a lot of time to create a good specification once you do it you can use it and, and renew every year but that's it's absolutely critical because if I if I tell you yeah I need you to transport from A to B, Is it dangerous goods? Is it temperature controlled? Uh, Is there an extra stop? What kind of, do you want it intermodal? If you don't create a great specification, you cannot create a perfect offer. So I think specification is is absolutely critical, having that in place. Then also we do spend calculations. So we look at, okay, so what are we currently spending? Where do we see opportunities? So you look at, you know, you're you're starting the pre-analysis already. Saying, okay, if we get bids in, you know, this is where we compare it to, to last year to calculate your savings or your, your results in the end. Then you go ahead, intermodal. Then you go ahead on agreeing on selection criteria. So is it just about price or how important is the service or the cost of change? You know, you, you agree on what are the selection criteria for uh, for that process. In the meantime, you create contracts. Yes, yeah, so you set up a, a, a contract to make sure that's signed off. You select your tender tool. You go and do an Excel file or use other tools such as Coupa or whatever. So there's there's plenty of tools out there. Then you go into your long list supplier creation and you drill it down. You start with like all suppliers possible, and then you have some knockout criteria. And you go in the end, you go through your, your, your short list suppliers that you actually invite to the RFP. Then you can even set up an RFI to request for information where you're asking, you know, are we dealing with the right suppliers? Can you handle our capacity, our volumes? Can you handle the service level, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And then you talk about a communication plan. That's everything that happens before the tender actually. And,
0: okay, so I think a lot of salespeople don't really realise the amount of effort, work, resource that goes into these tenders. And there are a couple of things that I want to highlight. The first thing is, as a seller, it's important that you ask the question: Where are you in your decision-making process? Are you defining the requirement? Uh, sorry, are you gathering information? Are you defining the requirement and the specification, or are you at the point where you are ready to select a partner? Because if they're gathering information, they're at market assessment. And in the buying, the true customer journey follows this syntax. People make space when they think they have a problem or they need to purchase something. Then they look passively. Then they start to look actively, and that's where we get into this market assessment gathering information stage. Then they move from there into making trade offs. And they've now gone through this process and they've invested a hell of a lot of time, effort, money, resource. They've been speaking internally, they've got a bunch of key stakeholders, they've got the project team, they've been defining the scope. And now what they're doing is they're defining the specification and they're trying to work out what they're going to remove for the final tender. So now that what they can do is they can define the specification. But the problem often, certainly we see, or I've seen in uh, many occasions, is that if the buyers haven't done a really strong piece around the project team creation and the objective setting isn't clear, very often what they will do is they'll go out and buy something they think they need, but actually, it's the wrong thing. So you get to the end of the RFP process, and then they realize, oh, shit, actually, this isn't going to work. So that then yep. the RFP, again, is a bogus one. So if you have a strategic relationship with your buyers, then you can help them to define that specification and write the tender document. So I'd just like to explore that. Sure. Yeah, 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 perfect. Because that is
1: nirvana for salespeople. Yeah, um, and almost never achieved. Yeah, so so the, the specification creation, I'll, I'll talk in a second. You also mentioned the objective setting. I think this is also a key question. Like, what are your tender objectives? So you need, to, as a salesperson, you need to understand what their tender objectives are. What are they trying to achieve? Typically, we assume it's about saving money, but that's not always the case. Yeah. So that's a good ask, question to ask. And actually, around the specification creation, as you mentioned, I think the what I used to do. Well, what happened? I got I got a lot of feedback from uh, suppliers uh, every now and then. Like, well. I'm a current supplier. I know exactly how this business runs, but everyone else who's competing doesn't know that. So I'm, I know I'm going to be more expensive because I know you need this kind of formalities and this and that, et cetera. So I know it's going to be more exp- I'm going to be more expensive than my competition. I don't think that's fair. Which for me, I'm like, I listened to that a couple of times and thinking, you know what? My specification isn't correct. If that's what's happening, yeah? then I haven't specified well enough what I'm supposed to be buying because apparently other things that are important So what I started doing since then is is on complex elements or complex buying exercise, I went to a current supplier and said, you know what, here's a specification I plan to send out. Is this correct? Am I specifying it the way that you are delivering it to us currently, or am I missing something? And based on that, you did a gap analysis. So looked at, okay, and then uh, you look at, where are the differences between what I think we are buying and what my current supplier thinks they are buying, they're offering to us? And then we had this, this project team discussion around, okay. Apparently, we're doing this. Do we actually need that or not? Very good. And we ended up with a, with a perfect specification, which is based on, you know, getting your supplier's input, getting your input, and actively thinking, is this what we want? Reality is, however, that not every buyer will do that. So as a salesperson, you almost need to force them into this kind of position. Like, all right, I see your specification. Like, Is it okay if I add some, some context to make it better so you get the best outcome in your RFP? Because a buyer is not... Happy nighter if they buy something and then found out they bought the wrong thing and need to redo the process. So it adds value for them as well. And as a seller, you can uh, you, you can help them. Again, I think there's something really important here
0: that sellers need to think as their customer. They need to understand the moving parts within the business. They need to understand the different stakeholders that are likely to be impacted by these important purchase decisions. And part of the problem is that salespeople, without wanting to be overly pejorative, are lazy. They are slipshod. They don't do anywhere near enough research. They don't, and they lack business acumen. It's one of my big frustrations that salespeople think that people buy their product. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know, I want to buy six tons of cocoa. Uh, There's a reason behind it. No one has ever woken up and said, I want to buy a CRM system or training or recruitment. There's always a reason behind it. And if you don't understand the business reasons behind it and the impact that the purchase is going to make on the individuals, human beings, incidentally, just in case you thought they were uh, organic ATM machines, then you're really going to struggle. And far too often, what happens is they get to the end of the buying cycle. And what we know from the research out of Stanford and Corporate Visions is that 60% of buying cycles end up in the status quo. Your biggest competitor is do nothing. Now, how, how can you make sure as a vendor
1: that you're not going to end up in the status quo? It's a good question. And one of the things I talk about in my trainings is as well as is, is it's Understanding the reasons why buyers run RFPs. There's about five reasons why they can run an RFP. I need to think about it from the top of my head now. But One is because they're forced to do it. It's company policy. But actually, they're not interested in changing or moving supplier or whatsoever. It's company policy. Yeah, we, we need to do it. One could be interested in benchmarking. Just benchmarking to see whether there's something in the market. I think the third one is actually the, the real RFP. It's where actually we're running an RFP because we want to see what opportunities there are in the market and we will change if there is a better opportunity for us. And then there's a, there's a fifth one. It's even a for, uh, fourth one. It's even a forced change. We have to move because we are so unhappy with our current supplier. I missed one now, but I can't recall. But that's, anyway, in terms of the, the sequence of those four, it's the likelihood to change, which is absolutely critical. Is going up with everyone. The first one is the lowest likelihood to change. The last one is the highest likelihood to change. And as a salesperson, it's good to understand what is the RFP reason. What's the reason why this particular buyer is running an RFP? Because often you think you're running an RFP. You think it's 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 the third one where you know we're actively looking for change. It, it turns out to be a benchmark, and then you end up in this kind of status quo area where nothing happens because they're happy with the current supplier and they're just using that outcome to, to, to negotiate a better deal with their current supplier. And then you don't hear from them and nothing actually happens. So it's critical for a salesperson to understand what kind of RP is this buyer running? It's asking questions. The problem is buyers won't actually tell you what their reasons are, because if, if they tell you, no, it's just a benchmark, then they know S- uh, sellers will lose interest in actually providing quotations thinking, well, I can't win any business anyway, so why bother giving them any feedback? So they will always tell you we're running an RFP, where in reality it could be one of the other reasons. Yeah, So that's crucial to understand. I'd like to explore some themes that have come
0: to mind as a result of what we just talked about. The first one is that if you understand the business and you understand the different moving parts, Not with every product, certainly if you're in the strategic end or you're offering something that's category creating, there is potential to sell it on the basis that if you buy from us, you can stop spending money here, here, and here, and you can replace a whole load of things, which frees up time, money, and resource. It eliminates risk. And that budget can now be redeployed somewhere else in the business. What salespeople need to do is they need to really think, what what are we going to be able to replace? Is it just a like-for-like exchange? Or if we put in a password-free solution, can we eliminate password management software? Can we eliminate VPNs? Can we eliminate single uh, sign-on and multi-factor authentication? Can we um, move people into the cloud? Can we move them onto mobile devices and uh, make them more efficient? And so don't think of your product as the thing that they are buying. There is so much more often behind what you're selling if you actually apply some intellect to it. Now, the second part of that is that if you can create opportunity within the business, then you can make the purchasing people the hero. And I think one of the problems is that there has been this historical adversarial relationship between sales and buying. And actually, if there is a way that you can make purchasing the hero yeah. in the business, they are
1: far more inclined to buy from you. That's the fundamental question. It's like We started that off in the, in the podcast is, what are the buyer's objectives? And help them achieve that, those objectives. Once you know how to do that, and it doesn't mean you have to sacrifice all your profits and all your whatever, but it's around understanding what they want Giving the buyer what they want under your conditions. That is the most fundamental rule in dealing with buyers. First, understanding what they want, giving them what they want, but under your conditions, because you are, need to be assertive enough to ask for something in return for that. And so, Because otherwise, you will just be losing out. No, You give them what they want, but you get something in return that's of value to you. And that's, again, that's a really
0: important uh, point. If you're going to give something, make sure you get something of equal Or greater value back in return, or at worst, get an IOU and make sure that they understand I'm doing you a favor. And next time there's a deal, then you need to give me a little bit more fat in the deal, or you need to give me something of value. I need referrals. I need a longer term contract. I want um, these kind of service levels. I want engagement. One of the things that every seller who's worth their salt is able to negotiate is regular contact. Now, one of the things that I see very often happen, particularly in an RFP process, is vendors are told, do not contact anyone else in the organization or you will be excluded.
1: And you know why that is? You know why buyers... Because they're afraid that people will buy. Exactly. So if you look at the entire organization and you put a color on every different department in an organization, everyone will be red. You know your customer service team, your logistics team, your quality team—red, red, red—because red, they need to build relationship, trade something better. Finance team, efficient flow of invoicing—it's all red, 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 red. So, whomever you speak to in the organization will be red, except one division, and that's the procurement division. And they—and once you're red, you give away information, you talk about stuff, and buyers don't want their internal clients talking about stuff, saying their stories. There were like horror stories inside the procurement teams in the, in the old days where. The procurement, uh, a procurement buyer was sitting next to their internal client in a meeting with a supplier. And um, uh, this internal client said, The buyer was giving this supplier a hard time. And, and the internal client said, Why are you giving him a hard time? He's the only one who can supply this to us. What, yeah. what, what are you doing? <laughs> this is the horror story that in procurement. So we know that that's, buying is commercial sense, is uh, savvy, not commercially savvy. Yeah. The rest of the organization is not. It provides a bit of an opportunity for, 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 for salespeople as well, actually, to build and, relationships outside the buying community. And
0: this is why, as salespeople, you need to start months or even years before you expect to transact, and you need to multi-thread those conversations. Absolutely. So you are having conversations with the C-suite, with the executive level, with yeah. the operational management level, with the users, with the people who are impacted. And if you are smart, you will do that before you approach the business. You do your fact-finding, you do your research, you build relationships on LinkedIn, you meet people at conferences and events, you provide these people with relevant, timely, valuable insight and information. So by the time you get to have the conversation with procurement, it's pretty much um, that the pressure that they are under. To make Second the purchase thing. from you is significant, and if they like Mark just said, you will have all of these champions who will turn around to procurement and say, "What the
1: hell are you doing?" I would say, "Hallelujah!" Exactly, that's exactly what it's about. Because you know, I talked about project team in uh, when I talked about the iceberg and all the stuff that's happened. There's a project team, so it's never a buyer alone making that decision. There's always a project team, and everyone else in the project team will be red. You know, they're building relationships. So build at, at each level. So it doesn't have to be you as a salesperson, but your organization needs to build red relationships, red table relationship with all these, these project team members. Once that's in place, and then if a buyer says, I want to switch then the entire, to, to a new supplier, and then the entire project team will look at, at him or her saying, That'll be a really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't. And that makes
0: your life so much easier. And the, the other element of this is that as the uh, salesperson, you are captain of the ship and everybody else from your CEO, your CFO, your head of legal, whoever, they are crew. And in enterprise or complex, um, you know, multi-year, multi-million dollar sales, you need to be marshalling those people so that you have the right people having the right conversation with their equivalent over time. So by the time an RFP comes up, you're getting the inside track. People are telling you, um, I know that uh, procurement's going to be running an RFP in about six months. OK, and you know they're telling you all the stuff that you need so that when the RFP uh, uh, comes out, you are now properly equipped to ask the questions and stand out from your competition. But again, at that level, selling is actually a project management role. With maybe 10 to 19%. I mean, again, the stats on this are really interesting. On average, I see around 10 to 21, 22% of salespeople's time is actually spent in front of the customer. The majority of time is actually done in uh, in the background, doing your research, relationship building, uh, research, all that kind of stuff. But most salespeople, are just busy banging the phones, trying to get meetings. Absolutely, they're not strategic. They don't think like a general. They no. think like a private.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that, that, that's that's exactly what I help them with in, in my training. You know, it's it's I have this one day training where I'm just taking them through each of those steps. Let's analyze your buyer first before you you start banging on their doors. You know, just just what what is going on inside their heads? What do they do, and why do they do what they do, and what does that mean for you? You know, it just. That's so fundamentally important. And, and you're right. You know, if you don't do this preparation, it's the slogan. If you, uh, if you fail to prepare, you're prepare to fail, right? So that's exactly what it's about. And I don't see a lot of sellers doing that these days, unfortunately, because I think their added value could be significantly higher. Well, I had a really interesting conversation
0: this morning. And salespeople are decision-making enablers if it's done right. The problem is that most of them are trying to peddle product. And that's not what executives need or want. That's not what purchasing wants. Purchasing is a vital uh, component of many businesses nowadays. And treating them as if they're just the enemy is a monumental mistake. Sorry, go on.
1: No, no, I I just want to build on that. Because if I think back to when I started in procurement, procurement was very new as an organization. So procurement hasn't been around for much longer than 20 years or so, which, which is actually quite short. Beforehand, it was like the logistics manager or the finance manager or just somebody in the organization doing procurement, like, oh, it meant more like I'm ordering material from somebody that I know. That, that, that was the procurement yeah. process beforehand. So procurement has only started to become a professional function like it started like 20 years ago, which is quite short because compared to sales, much, much older. And in the old days, you know, salespeople just had a great story, you know, a bit of an extrovert uh, personality. and. They got away with anything. They could sell anything. They could sell snow to Eskimos, you know, it's like really, really slick people. But the times have changed because people don't realize that an average organization, it's not just a manufacturing organization, but even in the service industry, about 50 to 70% of a company's turnover is procured. Massive. And CEOs are starting to see that. Nobody actually noticed that beforehand. It's a bit weird, but nobody noticed what big chunk of money is procured by an organization. And then people realize, so if I save 1%, it goes straight to my bottom line. Yes, it does. It's a direct saving. It just means your profit increases. Oh, well, then I think we need to professionalize. And that's what's been happening in the last 20 years. And I, I find that procurement has evolved rapidly in 20 years. Sales hasn't. Sales hasn't. They still believe the old school way of working is, a, is you can compile it today. And it, that's just not the case. And that's why I see so many salespeople struggling with their buyers. I'm not saying all buyers, because there are some buyers who are still operational or, you know, they're quite in this old kind of procurement role where you're just ordering materials. That's fine. No, don't touch it. It's it's working. But once buyers become even tactical or strategic, that's where you run into problems because you'll be tendered every year. And if you don't have the answer to that, you'll just be giving them money every single year. When sellers have an issue with the buyer, it's because buying has professionalized more than, than sales has over the last 20 years. And this is really interesting.
0: I have a book um, next to me called Personal Selling by Wesley Allen Stanger, and it was written in 1920. And he makes the point then that sales needs to change and evolve at least every 10 years because what worked back then doesn't work now. And the problem is that people have forgotten that. They're fixated on technique. They're fixated on having this framework. And they apply it because that's what they learned first. And buyers are evolving. And it's what the people have forgotten is the context in which buyers operate uh, changed with the advent of the internet. They now have the sum total of human knowledge at their fingertips. They have the closest thing to uh, what economists used to talk about being the perfect market, where buyers have visibility of all of your competitors All of their pricing, all of their products, and they can do the compare and contrast. So, you know, the 57% of the decision that has already been made, it may already have happened, even if it was misinformed. I fundamentally believe that price is neither a good way to buy or sell. It's not about the price, the customer is looking for the outcome. If you're in the commodity space, then perhaps they're going to uh, just sell on price. Yeah. But you can still move yourself into the bottleneck by focusing on the after service, if there is any risk at all. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. just one other thing as well. Understand that buying is just the other side of the coin of selling. The problem is, it's just selling from the other side of the table. They've got to sell, and because um, there, there's a lovely maxim that David Sandler came up with. Which is that in every sale, sales conversation, a sale always happens. Either they buy from you or you buy from them. And if you're buying the buyer's story, uh, then shame on you. <coughs>
1: It's funny what you, what you mentioned there because I, I call my book The Other Side of Sales because yeah. you know, sales is perceived as like there's one side of sales just sending information or going at it. No, there's another side of sales which is thinking from a buyer's perspective and that's exactly what I, uh, I I try to teach. The other thing you mentioned around you know the internet and they're spot on. It's all about globalization. Buyers have access to suppliers all, all, all over the world. You know, it's not local anymore. It's global and transparency. That's the other thing. So it's globalization, transparency. We know exactly what prices. You know. I just have to send one email and, and I know pricing of uh, whatever I need to buy in Brazil, America, China, Thailand, or, or Russia. You know, it's that simple. Whereas you know, in the old days, you, know, you had to use phone and fax to, to find out and you know, <laughs> it, it was a struggle. It's not anymore. You know, so we know exactly who your competitors are and we know exactly where they are. So if you don't step up your game, you will lose. And it will be a pricing game and you'll lose. The third one you mentioned, it's not about price. You're right. At at Mars, we talked about value for money, which I thought was a really nice one because it's sometimes value for money means the same value for less money, but sometimes value for money means for the same money, more value. It has two two dynamics to it. and, and, And you're right. You need to think about which one you want to apply to add more value for the same money, making buyers happy or... I want to build on that as well, because very often
0: organizations and individuals do not understand the hidden cost. So let's take recruitment, for example. A wrong hire in an enterprise sales role will cost the company on average 35 to 125 times salary. Now, why on God's earth would you want to go to the lowest bid provider in order to find a resource? That is so critical. This is a resource who could affect you for the next 10 years after you fire them, because the buyers in those prospect organizations will not touch your company because of the shitty experience they've had with that particular salesperson. There's the lifetime value of that customer, all the referrals, the cross-sales, the upsells, the repeat business. The expansion sales, the opportunities to sell into their supply chain, their joint venture partnerships, their alliances to sell into their alumni, to sell into their family group of companies, sister companies, parent companies, subsidiaries, to sell into their customer's customer. Now, that's just one customer that you could blow all of that by having the wrong salesperson. So think about the real value of what you are offering and learn to have a little bit of self-respect. If you act like a commodity provider, you will get treated like one. And what Mark has taught us today is breathtakingly important. Um, I urge all of you to listen to this, take notes, then go and ask yourself those questions in the ugly mirror. What do I not understand about the process? Why is it when I'm spending my time prospecting, I'm leading with tedious shit about my company and talking about my product, when in fact, what I should be doing is maybe listening to the analyst calls and finding out the pressure that the chief executive and the CFO are under and how they stumble when they're asked a particular question. What research can I do about the competitive landscape in which my prospect or customer occupies? How can I help them gain a strategic advantage over their competition? How can I help them maybe develop new products and move into new marketplaces? This is the kind of stuff that modern salespeople Mm -hmm. need to be thinking about, not just showing up and throwing up, quote and hope, sell and run. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. We're coming to the, uh, well, we've already hit the top of the hour, um, but I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to exploit the advantage that I do have that you're on.
1: Talk to me about three questions people should ask, but don't. We talked about some of them. So one of them would be, you know, ask them what their objectives are. I think that's, I'm, I'm going to reiterate the importance of that. What are your objectives? And then think, really actively think about how you can help them achieve that. And you shouldn't forget yourself. Of course, you need to think about your objective, but let's, First, talk about the buyer's objectives. Yeah. How can you achieve them? And then think, what do I need to ask in return to help them achieve that? It's a different way of thinking. It's a reverse way of thinking. My mantra is always, give the other what they want under your conditions. How extreme That's their true. demand is under your conditions, because then you make extreme conditions as well. Yeah. Never give something for free. Never, ever. Because as a buyer, when I ask somebody, can you give me a 2% discount? And the seller says, yes, I can do that the feeling I will have as a result of that what is not going, not going to be good. It's not going to be good. It's, it's, it's actually horrible because I feel that went too easy. The seller tried to screw me. I didn't fall for it. There's more to be had. So where you're thinking you're doing the buyer a favor, the 2%, you're not. You're giving them a worse feeling than they had before. The only good feeling, because the buyer always wants to know they got the best deal, and they never know because they don't understand your company's cost structure. They just want the feeling that they have a good deal. So giving something without asking for something in return—it's it's a horrible experience for a buyer. Never. I'm ever. going to take it. I'm going to take
0: that one step further. The rule is, when asked for a concession, your answer is no, and you have to bite your teeth until your gums bleed at least three times. <laughs> if the buyer then continues to ask for that concession. Make sure that you find out exactly what concession they want. Don't just offer them 10% or 2%. Find out what they want and what they are willing to give back in return. And that's to play to Mark's point. Never give anything away unless you get something of equal or greater value back. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you end up putting them onto a pedestal. You become a commodity provider. And the relationship goes from adult to adult to parent-child. And that is lethal. That's when yeah. you've lost control. And it's not about trying to control them, but it's about trying to control the process and manage that in such a way that you end up with that win-win outcome. And a, a lot of people will say win-win is, you know, is, is a fallacy. It has to be right for both sides. Eventually, it doesn't have to be right for both sides in the moment. And that means you need to be ready to enter into constructive conflict. And what buyers are looking for above all else is buyer safety. They want to know that you have their best interests at heart. And if you don't give them that buyer safety, they will always be thinking of you as a risk. Fair? Yep,
1: absolutely. I would even take it a step further saying, well, if you give something without something determined, you actually destroy trust. because You the- tell them I lied. Yep. I lied yep. about my price. Exactly. Because I could have offered you 2% less. I didn't. I tried to screw you and it didn't work. You got me. That, that's the feeling people have as a result of that, which is, which is weird because you think I'm giving them 2%. They must feel happy about it. No, they don't. It's the opposite. Yeah. So, and where,
0: That is why when you are hiring salespeople, check for their honesty. One of my favorite questions early on in an interview is, Mark, when is it okay to lie to a buyer? And unless I hear never instantly, if there is a moment's hesitation, that to me is a red flag. I've had candidates this week who, in role plays, started to make shit up. And that was a reason to exclude them. And what I never want is a salesperson who will ever lie. Because whilst you may be forgiven, the lie can never be forgotten. And that is absolutely key, uh, key. Okay. Super. You had a couple of other questions that um, people should ask.
1: Yeah, and I think we covered some of them already, but I think they're so important that I will I think we should, uh, we should talk about it uh, uh, just one more time. It's, it's how does the decision-making process, process look like? Who's making decisions? And what are the, the criteria for making these decisions? So what are the objectives you're trying to achieve? So understanding that will help you, you know to just be better in, a, uh, in an RFP process or in, the, in a negotiation. So you need to know who are making the final decisions and under what criteria, criteria are they just looking at price or are they looking at other things like contract duration, payment terms, service level, quality standards, et etc.? et cetera. So uh, you can ask that question. I'm not sure they'll tell you, but I, I think you, at least you should ask that question to, uh, to a buyer.
0: I think something else that's really important in the course of asking that, is identifying, are people able to buy and are they willing to buy? And the will is often more important than the ability. Uh, because quite often, I, I remember years yep. ago, I mean, you, you've got the story about being hoodwinked by an estate agent into making a, a larger offer on a house. I remember I was uh, I cold called my way into a Dutch company in Eindhoven. and. I uh, flew over four times on a 12-seater plane, which got downgraded to a six-seater plane in turbulence. I took over my CEO, uh, my divisional MD, my head of research. I put together this fantastic action plan that was basically broken down into 15-minute increments. What I didn't find out was whether Martin was willing to buy, (laughs) and because actually Martin uh, took my proposal. And left and went to the world's largest recruitment company, Randstad, and he applied that proposal to make three million pounds worth of uh, recruitment placements in his first quarter uh, in this new role. So again, make sure that you have someone who is willing to buy. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <who> <laughs> it's learning, your, learning your the hard 3K way is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's 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 quite fundamental. So I think that's where you learn the hard way. <laughs> so uh, absolutely. Yeah. What, so, what, about, what about being blindsided? I've been blindsided many times. And and actually, if if I if I reflect on all the moments I've been blindsided, it was pretty much always due to lack of preparation, bad preparation. Yeah. I often, you know, once you become more experienced, you roll, you're thinking, I don't need to prepare anymore. You become a bit complacent, you go into a meeting, you know, just and just try to wing it. I sometimes realized after the meeting, like, what did I do? I just gave away something, you know, without asking anything in return. I, I shouldn't have given that. Well, they would have accepted you know, something else as well. Why did I do that? And just bad, bad preparation. That's it. And you, you mentioned the 3K. I had, uh, it still bothers me. It's, it's like 15, 15 years ago. Yeah. I, I was fairly new into procurement, but I was buying a house for me and my wife and not, nothing business related, but it's. So we're buying a house, and then the the real estate agent, the the real estate agent of the selling party, uh, called me and said, "Mark, can you make a a better offer?" And I said, "Yeah, I can do three thousand more." Uh, (laughs) Why why did I say that? I didn't ask for anything in return. I'm still still upset about it. I still feel stupid about that. (laughs) Uh, But even though it's 3k, I think the lesson was worth about ten times that that amount. So you know, it happens once, and then you 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 avoid these kind of things for the rest of your life. So. Yeah. So look, you, you've got a golden
0: ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Mark, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that you know he would, would have probably have ignored but would have benefited? Yeah.
1: From. It's an analogy that uh, that a good uh, a good friend of mine actually told me a couple of years ago. So I only heard it a couple of years ago. And I think, there are three types of water sports. It's rowing, it's canoeing, and it's uh, a, a canoeing and, and rafting. And so those are three ways how to get through life. like with so i have a bit puzzles, Like, what, what exactly do you mean with that? And he said, "Well, you have rafters. You know, they just jump on the river, and the river just takes them somewhere. You know, they they steer a little bit every now and then just to avoid hitting the side, but actually they just end up at a random place. You know, no plan, just floating yeah. through life, whatever. And then you have the rowers. And the rowers are people. You know, because they look back, just row away from that point as quickly as possible. I, I, ignore. I don't want to be. I don't want to focus yeah. on that. I don't want to do that." And then you have to uh, canoeing. And canoeing is like you, you take the same point on the horizon, but actually you focus and you go towards that exact point on the horizon. I found out that my, my life was a bit like rafting. And I decided, no, I probably need a bit more, more canoeing, realizing that in some areas I'm a rower and I hate myself for it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, 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 things, and I find out the things I'm not good at, I just start rowing, I get away from it as quickly as possible. And one of the things, it's, it's, it's horrible because it's actually quite important, is cold seals. I don't like cold sales. I'm, I'm crap at it, I don't like it. So what did I do? I started rowing as quickly and as fast as possible and realizing, you know what, I shouldn't be rowing, I should be canoeing. Or I should be rowing and outsourcing, or I should be canoeing, you know, learning it myself and, and, and going towards it and just facing it head on. So that analogy helped me just to, to make decisions in life. You know, how, how do I want to, to deal with situations? You know, I'm, I'm self-employed, so I need to do everything. I'm not good at everything. So I need to make choices. What where, men where, where, will I be rafting, canoeing, or, or rowing? That's a choice well, that some people need to make. That's interesting. Um, and what, what I've come to realize
0: is that where we find ourselves in avoidance or procrastination, often it's because we do not want to do it. And a great question to ask is, well, who does this well? And be willing to spend the time and the money to have someone else do that for us now it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to take someone up on employment, and um, increasingly, uh, what I'm seeing, and uh, I know you and I are friends with Fred Kopste. I think one of the most important skills that someone in your position can develop is partnering skills. Your success will be determined by your ability to collaborate, and so find people who sell to the same audience that you do but do not compete and find a way of augmenting what they are offering as a way of helping their customers overcome what are vitally important challenges. And it would seem to me that a very natural fit is people who are currently selling sales training or consultancy, those kind of uh, things, where you're a natural part of that whole process but it's a gaping hole. And most organizations will have an opportunity for someone like you to come in. And if you haven't read the other side of sales, get it today. Buy it now. Read it. Bring Mark in. Because it will make a significant difference. Since COVID has struck, uh, procurement's role in the organization as the right hand of the CFO has skyrocketed. and That's not likely to go back when eventually things start returning to some form of normality. Procurement is one of the quickest ways that the CFO can find money within the organization, either driving up profit, reducing cost, or improving cash flow. And you better get good at this, because if you don't,
1: you're toast. Absolutely. Excellent. Mark, how can people get hold of you? Well, uh, they can go to my website uh, if they want to reach out to me. I think all my contact details are there. So that's uh, wwwroy 10com So ten is one zero. So the name is from ROI is from return on investment. Yeah, so I, I promise you that the investment in the trading you make, you get a tenfold return on that. So that's a that's a pretty solid guarantee because I know that that's going to happen. The amount of money that's that's spent in sales and procurement is is, is immense, and and the impact I can have there is is, is huge. So uh, So you can find my uh, contact details there. And so and on LinkedIn, of course, you can always reach out to me with any questions you may have. Excellent. Mark Schenkies, thank you so
0: much. Thank you for having me. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, and God knows if you haven't, you're dead. So if you found this insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please email me or direct message me, connect us on LinkedIn. And if you're the owner or the CEO of a technology company in the 10 to 50 million turnover mark, and your goal is to grow your business and to achieve real sustainable hyper growth, and I'm talking 200% plus per annum compound with a highly engaged workforce and highly engaged sales, marketing, and customer success team that are fully aligned, and clients who stay with you year after year, decade after decade, and the business will be built on strong fundamentals without the wings coming off, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. You can reach me either via LinkedIn or at marcus at laughs-last.com. That's marcus at laughs-last.com.
1: In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.